0: From junior high to high school to college, there were two TV programs that I did not miss each day: SportsCenter and Sports Look, which was later named Up Close with Roy Firestone.
1: ESPN presents Sports Look. With the personalities and cover stories making news in the world of sports. Now here's your host, Roy Firestone.
0: If I remember correctly, Up Close would air, I think, at 5.30, and that would lead right into sports Center, which was on at 6. SportsLook and Up Close, they were the best interview shows on television, and Roy each day had the biggest names in the sports world. He asked questions that no one else was asking or no one else had the courage to ask. Thankfully, many of those interviews are available to watch on YouTube. Willie Mays, Ted Williams, Mickey Mantle, Ernie Banks, Vince Scully. At one time or another, baseball's all-time greats, came to that studio and sat across from Roy Firestone for a half hour. His knowledge of baseball, of ballparks in particular, is encyclopedic. Seven-time Emmy winner Roy Firestone is my guest on this episode of the Lost Ballparks podcast.
1: This is Harry Carey with Jack Buck and Jerry Gross from the beautiful new Bush
0: Memorial Stadium. And more I tell you, this is some psych. The crowd still coming in. The Bleacher area on center field almost filled, and the indication is that it's going to be a fine Friday night crowd here at the Polo Grounds. We're underway in the first of a
1: twilight doubleheader at Tiger Stadium. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen, greeting you from Yankee Stadium in
0: New York City. The F&M Schaefer Brewing Company, very happy to be pouring it to you from Ebbets Field tonight, and there should be a humdinger. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Al Helfer with Art Gleason, bringing you Mutual's Game of the Day from Sunny Shy Park in the city of Philadelphia.
1: Just the start of thing. so full of birds a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead, wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold
0: shave or two throughout the evening. Roy Firestone. I'm right here. How you doing? I'm doing great. I cannot wait to talk ballparks with you. It's one of my favorite subjects. So. Oh, fantastic. Let's jump into it. If I had two inspirations, two blueprints for this podcast, one would be Costas Coast to Coast, which aired, I think, from 86 to 96. The other was your program, Up Close on ESPN. I never missed an episode of either one of those shows. I knew that one day I wanted to do something similar. So thank you, Roy, for blazing a trail for this young kid from Ohio and showing me what it looked like to do something like this. Well, first
1: of all, you're very kind. Uh, Bob is a very good friend of mine, too. I I appeared and hosted Costas Coast to Coast a number of times, even when Bob wasn't there. And we had a great time doing it. I was fortunate to have the show uh, for parts of really four different decades. And we had uh, a show called Sports Look before that. And even before that, we had a show at the very beginning of ESPN, and I'm talking about 1978, way before ESPN was a thing, and the show was called Sports Hotline. So I done, I've done a lot of different versions of Up Close, but we ended up with Up Close and Sports Look doing close to 6,000 interviews. And I still, to this day, marvel at what a great opportunity it was for me to really get my feet wet in, in broadcasting. And I just loved every minute of doing what I did. and. I had such a great time at ESPN, and I have nothing but great things to say about it. And I'll always be cherishing what that show gave me and how it put me on the map in terms of my career. So uh, to this day, I try to, whenever I can, encourage and help promote and inspire, if I can, people who love uh, interviewing. The subject we have today is one of my favorite subjects. So we're on the same trail, I think.
0: Love to start with, as I do with most folks on this particular podcast, which is where and when did you take in your first Major League Baseball game? What are your recollections of that event and that place? Well, I don't know if
1: people can see us or they hear us. I can't tell on the show, but we have a little we do
0: a little bit of both. So,
1: yeah. Okay. Okay. So if anyone is looking at this right now, this behind me is called Miami Stadium. It does not exist any longer. It later became a stadium known as Bobby Maduro Stadium in Miami. Uh, this is where it all started for me. I was a, a young kid growing up in Miami. They didn't have a professional baseball They didn't have a major league professional baseball team. They had the Marlins uh, in the old days, the old Marlins, not the, these Marlins, which is a major league team. The stadium that you see behind me was built in 1949. And you talk about some history. First, before I tell that history, I, I do say that was my first place to see a ball game. I think as far back as I can remember, Could have been 1958. I was probably just three or four years old. And uh, I remember my dad taking me to a game against the Washington Senators, which technically speaking, I guess they're the Nationals now. The word N-A-T-S, Nats, was the nickname for the Senators. So it's kind of confusing. But I remember my father yelling, come on, Smitty, come on, Smitty. I said, who is Smitty? Guy's name was Hal Smith. It opened my eyes. I love baseball. Always been a big baseball fan. Although there are some football stadiums that carry some sentiment, not as much as baseball. And I think it is because baseball is a game of our youth when you were a kid, and it's more sentimental because you were with your dad or your uncle or your brother. And uh, for me, it was all the all of the above. Uh, so the stadium behind me uh, has a, an amazing backstory to it. Maybe unlike any, I guess it was minor league, but also spring training stadium, and incidentally. It also um, was the home of the Brooklyn, not quite, the soon-to-become Los Angeles Dodgers. And Brooklyn, you know, Jackie Robinson played most of his exhibition seasons right here in Miami Stadium. And people think it's Vero Beach. Most of his career was played in Miami in spring training, I'm talking about. Boy, there's so many memories I have with this stadium, which we'll talk about.
0: So that first game, you might have actually,
1: it might have been a Brooklyn Dodger game, right? I think it's probably close to 59. I think the Orioles were in their first year. Okay. I think they they overlapped one year, the Dodgers and the Orioles. And also, the the minor league team was the Phillies, strangely enough. It wasn't the Orioles. The Orioles eventually became their minor league franchise. But I think it's unique to baseball for all of its issues and flaws. Baseball is the sentimental game. Now, you could love football, but very few people get sentimental over football. As George Carlin once said, You know, the stadium names are different. You know, (laughs) in baseball, it's a park. It's Oriole Park. (laughs) But in football, it's War Memorial Stadium. You know, I remember George talking about that and because the football stadiums are purposed for a real battle, whereas baseball, it's more of like a park. You know, it's grass, lots of grass, and you're going home. I'm paraphrasing, of course, George. (laughs) But I really think that a lot of my sentiment towards the game came from this ballpark behind me because there's so many great memories. I was a bat boy for the Orioles.
0: This started in what year? This was the 60s, like uh, maybe 66, 65, 66? It was a few years later.
1: They had already won their first world championship, the Orioles did, in 66. Of course, you know, if you're a baseball fan and you're old enough to remember, they swept the Dodgers.
0: A mad, swirling
1: mass of delirious Orioles. It's the first sweep for the American League since 1950. In what may have been the best-pitched World Series of all time. And the Baltimore Orioles, who were supposed to be short of pitching, set a new World Series
0: record of 33 consecutive scoreless innings.
1: They used only one reliever in four games. So that was remarkable. They beat the Dodgers in a shocker, uh, four straight. But I became the bat boy later, uh, right around 1970. Okay. When they... They, won, they beat the big red machine in 1970. And then, of course, they went to the World Series again in 71. I was there for all the, the years where they were good and when they were not so good. But 69 was probably their best Oriel team, I think, uh, even better than the, the 72. That was Frank Robinson, Boog Powell, and Brooks Robinson. And-
0: you saw Frank Robinson's first home run, old Miami Stadium, yes, during spring training. Can you Can you talk yeah. about that?
1: Yeah, it's so funny you bring that up because when Frank passed away, I did a lot of interviews and uh, people asked me what kind of guy Frank was. And, you know, he was some days he was absolutely a delight. Some days he was ornery. But Frank was Frank. He, He was like a lot like one of his closest friends, Bill Russell. Frank endured a lot. And racially, growing up, and even in Cincinnati, which is over the river from Kentucky, and you can imagine in the 50s what that might have been like, Mm -hmm. and they would serve Frank meals and stuff. And then even when he came to Baltimore, they wouldn't let him buy a house in a white neighborhood. And Brooks Robinson, they screwed up the names, uh, the people who were were lenders and looking to, to get him a house. Brooks Robinson signed off on Frank's first house in Baltimore. So anyway... It's 1966. It's probably March or April. The season had not yet started. The Orioles had not yet won a World Series. And I'm walking into this stadium behind me. And as I'm walking, Frank Robinson had just been acquired by the Orioles from the Cincinnati Reds. By the way, he had a pretty good year. Everyone said, oh, he was on his way down. He ended up with close to 30 home runs and about 100 RBIs. These days, it gets you 20 million. Right, But they called him an old 30, this guy named Bill DeWitt, who was the, and I think he was a nitwit, uh, (laughs) was the general manager of the Reds, and they wanted to trade him, and they did. Or a guy named Milt Pappas, who was a pitcher, and a couple of other players. So I'm walking in the stadium, it's about, game started in those days at 7 o'clock, with my brother, and as we're walking in, we see Frank Robinson walking up to the plate, and the first pitch he saw, he hit over the light tower in Miami Stadium. Miami Stadium was a beautiful, for its time, a beautiful ballpark. They had a thing called the Cantavalier. The the roof extends across. No one had done that, had ever done that before, but they decided to to build this in 1949. And the, the stories behind this stadium are remarkable. They had water shows on the field with giant structures filled with water. They had rodeos. They had circuses. They had political rally. Kennedy spoke there several times. Wow! But what really is fascinating about this is under the basement of this stadium, they were storing weapons for the Bay of Pigs invasion, unbeknownst to anybody. The Cuban exiles who were forming up to try to overthrow Castro stored missiles and weapons and machine guns in the basement of this stadium. So there's a lot of history to it. And I should tell you, Mike, that there's a documentary you may or may have not heard about called White Elephant. It's a story about this stadium. And it had a lot of sentiment to me because I was just a kid. I talked my way into becoming Bat Boy, probably 14, 15 years old, maybe. And the friends that I made, the ball players that I knew, I still have, if they're still alive, most of those people are my friends to this day. And Brooks Robinson being one
0: your very first day
1: as a bat boy, he sort of befriends you. I'm sure the people who watch this program or listen to this program have a little bit more of a baseball knowledge and his of the history. Yeah. But Brooks Robinson for those who don't know, and you should was probably the greatest defensive or certainly one or two, the greatest defensive third baseman of all time. You think when you see Machado now, Manny Machado think of a guy named Brooks Robinson who preceded him by almost 40 years. And, um, Manny wasn't even born when Brooks was doing all his things. And uh, he was one of the great defensive players. He, he single-handedly won the 70 World Series with his defense as well as his bat. Anyway, so I'm the bat boy. It's day one, and I don't know what I'm doing. I've never been a bat boy before. I've never been in a clubhouse before. And I I hear a knock on the door, and the door opens, and it's Brooks Robinson. He goes, hey, partner, what's your name? I said, my name is Roy. Hey, Roy, I'm looking for some da da whatever it was, shoes or some spikes or something. Do you know what? And I'm sitting there talking to Brooks Robinson. I'm talking 15 seconds into this job. He was the first one to come in. Well, if you think about it, you know, that's pretty, pretty heady stuff. If you're a kid, you want to meet your hero someday, maybe if if you love sports or anything. Quite an introduction. Within five minutes or 10 minutes, he asked me if I want to play pepper with him, which is a game where you take the bat and you, you hit balls to each other. And I said, Mr. Robinson, that's oh, OK. Call me, Brooks. Can I interview you for my high school paper? He said, sure. So the next day I came with a tape recorder and I did this interview. I didn't know what I was doing. It was probably my first real interview. And I went home so excited because I did a 20 minute interview with Brooks Robinson. And then I played it back and it didn't record. There was something wrong with how I pressed the button or something and it didn't record. So I had to go back the next day and say to Brooks, Brooks, I'm so sorry, but the tape recorded and record, can we do it? You think you, I'm, I'm, a. he goes, let's just do it again. And he was just that cheerful. I never forgot how nice he was to me as a kid. So he became my only real hero, certainly in baseball.
0: In so many of the interviews on this podcast, there always seems to be a full circle moment. Bob yep. Costas, who was on in season three, for the season three premiere talked about growing up a, a huge Mickey Mantle fan, passing the monuments in center field with his dad on their way out of the ballpark and getting teary because he thought that one day Mickey Mantle would be would be buried there. And then later on getting the opportunity to not just interview Mickey, but then become friends with him and eventually do his eulogy. And then for you, similarly with, with Brooks, you get to interview him as a kid. You become friends with him. You interview him, of course, later. And then one day in 2012, you get a call from Brooks to helping pay tribute.
1: Well, that's, you do your research, which is great to hear. You know, Brooks was my friend, but at no point did I ever in my life expect to get a phone call from him. And he goes, he just always called me partner. Hey, partner. I say, hey, Brooks, how are you? He goes, I got a favor to ask you. Now, Brooks Robinson asking me for a favor. Yeah. I said, whatever it is, the answer is yes. I don't care what I have to do to change my schedule. He's He says, no, you're not going to have to change your schedule. He says, I just would like you to introduce me for the statue unveiling at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. You know, in TV and old movies, when somebody would say something on a phone, people would go like, look at the phone, like, are you kidding? They'd stare at the phone. That's what happened with me. I, started, I couldn't believe my ears. I said, are you sure? I mean, you have all these great players <laughs> you played with. He said, yeah, I'm sure. He says, because I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. By saying, I want Jim Palmer over Frank Robinson or Eddie Murray over this. I want you because that way you're not a, a member of my team and you, you were a bad boy, but you just, I would appreciate if you did it. So I wrote this piece and it's, it's on YouTube and people can see it. It says Roy Firestone on Brooks Robinson Day. That's what it's called. And I got up in front of about 3,000 people. I had written an essay about Brooks. I had never seen a Major League Baseball player up close. And on my first day of work, I met Brooks Robinson. And it was very emotional for me because I don't know, again, how you feel or any of your, of your listeners or viewers feel about sentiment and childhood heroes. It would be like, I don't know, comparing it to Roy Rogers or Sylvester Stallone more contemporarily. Growing up, being having posters and pictures and ball, b- baseball cards, all those things, and then you become his friend, and then at, towards the, the very be- beginning of your, you know, your your association with, with the new Oriole, the new Oriole Ballpark, Camden Yards, Brooks asks you to say a few words about it. But ladies and gentlemen, I was impressed more by his warmth and kindness to the fans than I was the physical skills. It was emotional for me. My voice caught a couple of times because mm. how many people in life get the chance to tell somebody how much they love them, really, uh, especially a sports hero? So that was a big deal for me. And I remember he's sitting right he was sitting down right next to me while I'm saying all these great things about him. And he's such a humble guy. He kept looking down. He didn't really. I think he was all he could do is to not cry himself. When he got up after I introduced him, he talked about me. For about two thirds of the of, of the this the speech about what a bad boy I was and how funny it was, and I realized why. I later I realized it was because he didn't want to get too emotional. He didn't want to talk about himself and his love of playing for the Orioles, what it was like. So he kind of passed it off uh, verbally to talk about me and tell me some tell funny stories about how I was so naive and as a bad boy. They used to have this. Uh, kind of practical joke to all the bat boys who were starting out, go get the the keys to the pitching machine. Now, I don't know <laughs> what that means. So they asked me to go over to the left field and left field sent me, oh, no, they're over. It's over in right field. I'd run. Come on, hustle, kid. Then they said, no, no, it's not here. It's behind. It's, it's over in center field. They had me running on. They were laughing. I didn't know what was going on. They also asked me, we got to get some more left-handed bats out here. Now I'm 15 or 14 years old, and of right. course, I'd never, I'd never heard of a left-handed bat. Yeah, but I thought before I say, "Oh, come on, you're pulling my leg." I said, "Well, maybe there's something in the grip for a lefty." <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and so they said, "Come on, Roy, better get some left-handed bat." Well, Brooks remembered all these stories. It was, uh, it was just a great, great special time for me. Uh, it was truly one of, in my public life, one of the great thrills of my life.
0: And then in another, someone really needs to pinch me kind of a moment, years later, you welcome two guests to your home. I think maybe this is 2016 or 2017. Frank Robinson had just passed away. Right. Frank had passed and yeah. they were
1: doing a memorial for him in Los Angeles because he did play for the Dodgers too, uh, and the Angels, by the way. So they wanted to do something at Dodger Stadium. So I get a call one day from Brooks's son, who's also named Brooks. He's my friend, Brooks David. He said, hey, my, my pop wants to come to town for Frank's thing. Do you know a place where we could stay that you would recommend? I said, you stay with me. I mean, I don't even know why I said it, because it's just so ridiculous that, I, that Brooks Robinson would stay at my house. He said, let me ask my dad. And he called me back. He said, dad, w- would love to stay at your house. And Palmer, Jim Palmer, who, who I just t- spoke to a few moments ago on a text, he also came because they were all going to go to the, the memorial. Well, I have to tell you a very quick story. Brooks is not a person who writes speeches, and he gets a little tongue-tied at times because he's shy. He's a humble guy.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: He said, hey, boy, I see him on my dining room table. I'll never forget this. And he's writing some thoughts about his Frank who had just passed away. He's writing some things. He says, can you help me write this? Now, think about that for a second. I'm just this guy who was the bat boy, and now I'm helping him write a speech for Dodger Stadium to talk about his teammate, Frank Robinson, who really changed the Oriole organization almost single-handedly. I said, how about this? They talk about coming to play. There's an old expression in sports. He really came to play today. Like, you know, Larry Bird came to play. And I said, I'll write this. I said, you know, people talk about Frank and how he came to play, but he didn't just come to play. He came to win. And by winning we all won black and white all of us in terms of how we were as a team and for that we are grateful end of the speech thank you give it to brooks brooks reads he goes i love this this is great Wait, he he didn't come to play he came to win But by winning we all won all of us as teammates black and white diff- different backgrounds and because of that we are champions or whatever yeah so get to we get to the memorial and there's Brooks getting up there like a parent seeing your child at a at suddenly doing a reading something or doing a speech or something. And you're like, you're so excited. And Brooks gets up there and he he goes, and people say that there's an old expression in sports he came to play. Well, Frank did just that. Thank you. <laughs> he just blew the whole thing. <laughs> You had this this great line written. It wasn't so much about me. So I walk up, I said, Brooks, what happened? He goes, I panicked. I just panicked.
0: (laughs) It was so great. Yeah. So so that old ballpark, Miami Stadium, it represents not just ball games that you went to, not just the very first uh, Major League Baseball game that you ever watched, but also the beginning of relationships and friendships formed that have lasted now a lifetime. Sadly, old Miami Stadium no longer exists. It's long since been taken down to make room for affordable housing, but um, so many memories.
1: you know I know that you need affordable housing. It's very important in this country for people to have affordable. I get that, but there's something sad to me about legendary structures and it's <laughs> in the story is in the documentary White Elephant that it's kind of too bad. I, I don't know if they're historical should be protected historically. This baby had a lot of memories behind it. You know, a lot of important things happened. Political speeches, uh, Roosevelt spoke there, a lot of baseball, they even played football there too. A lot of teams practice. football teams practiced at this stadium. Uh, it doesn't exist anymore. And I always come back to that song that was sung by Frank Sinatra. There used to be a ballpark. Now. Yeah, sure, yeah. And I, I'm gonna just take a second here while while I talk to you. Uh, It was written by a guy named Joe Raposo. And the lyric goes like this. There used to be a ballpark where the air was warm and green and the people played their crazy game with a joy I'd never seen. And the air was such a wonder from the hot dogs and the beer. Well, there used to be a ballpark right here. And there used to be rock candy and a great big Fourth of July with the fireworks exploding all across the summer sky. And the people watched and wonder how they'd laugh and how they cheer. There used to be a ballpark right here. To me, that got me because when I was a kid, that was my ballpark. It wasn't one of these billion-dollar stadiums with the electric scoreboards and the incredible uh, video boards and all those things. It wasn't artificial surface. It wasn't anything like that. It was a simple ballpark with a lot of great memories for me. And there used to be a ballpark right here. And now it's gone. I think they put a a plaque there, like they did a plaque at Polo Grounds, Crosley Field. A lot of the stadiums have Forbes Field. But there's something disappointing to me. I understand why, but that they couldn't find a way to refurbish the stadium behind me, make it the home of the New Marlins, say, maybe build uh, housing complexes around it like they do with a lot of stadiums now.
0: I think about so many of those great old ballparks like Ebbets Field, Tiger Stadium, the Polo Grounds, that certainly there's something that could have been... I mean, take the Polo Grounds, for instance. If you just look at the, the center field Clubhouse at the Polo Grounds with the Chesterfield sign that would yeah. emit smoke, you know, when the Giants would hit a home run, why not be able to save that piece of the ballpark and build an apartment complex or shopping center or something around it? The problem with Miami Stadium behind me, the one that I'm
1: talking about now, it was run down, there were rats. There was, they would have had to take the whole thing out and then start all over again. But there was room to do it. Uh, I remember another thing is when I was Bat Boy, uh, in Florida, they have a thing called Wholesome Bakeries, Wholesome Bread. And there was a factory right over the right field wall and maybe a half a mile away. And when you come to the ballpark early, you could smell the bread being cooked or baked, I should say. And I'll never forget that smell. It always felt to me like Miami Stadium, how it smelled. couple of that with cigars and pipes. Right. In those days, you <laughs> could smoke cigars at a stadium, which you can't do anymore. But the mix of smells even was great. So much fun, Mike. You know, I, I, I think about all the, the bus rides I had with those players. Many are gone. Uh, you know, they passed on. But the fun I had, and I remember vividly saying, and "I was again, 15, 16, I said, this is what I want to be around. I want to figure out a way to stay with these ballplayers because they were so amusing to me. And I really got to know them. I saw uh, Bobby Gritch. I don't know if that name means anything to Absolutely. a lot of people.
0: Great second baseman. Yeah.
1: Bob Costas and I were at a fundraiser one night. Bobby Gritch was there. So Bob starts to, like, for some reason, he started introducing me to Bobby Gritch. And Bobby Gritch says to Bob Costas, Bob, this is our bad boy. He didn't say this is Roy Firestone. He said. This is our bat boy. He used to perform and entertain us in the clubhouse every, because I do impressions and stuff. And Bob says, really? He goes, oh, he was one of the worst bat boys we ever had, but he was amusing as hell. Because <laughs> I was a performer. I I, I got up there and I, I entertained the players, and that's how they became to know me. I'll tell you another postscript to a story. There was a, a young man named Rudy Arias. Rudy Arias was a fellow bat boy with me. At that very same time, and I had somehow switched hats with him, and I kept this hat for 50 years, and his name was underneath it, under the bill of the hat, said Rudy a. a. Arias. Well, Rudy Arias ended up becoming the bullpen catcher for the Orioles. Yeah. Really? He made, yeah, and he made, had a you know, they pay you, and it's not a lucrative career, but you make a living, and you actually can get a ring if they win a World Series. He also did it for the Yankees too. So I didn't know what happened to Rudy Arias, but I'm at Anaheim one time and the guy walks up to me. And he goes, Roy, I'm Rudy Arias. I went, Rudy Arias, you were a bad boy with me. He goes, yeah, I'm bullpen catcher now for the Orioles. I said, I have your hat. He goes, what? I said, 50 years I've had this hat with your name on it. And I could see he starts to get sentimental. He goes, Really? Could you send it to me? I said, I would be thrilled to send it to you. Oh, my gosh. I said, I sent him the hat. He started to sob. It was very emotional for him because it wasn't just a kid. And then he ended up having a job in baseball. And by the way, he even had a brief major league career as a player. I think in Seattle for a few at-bats, not many. Yeah, But he said it was one of the biggest thrills of his life to get his hat back. So
0: wow. you can imagine all the nostalgia
1: that's tied up to this ballpark behind me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I look back at the guests that um, that you've interviewed throughout the years. But I think particularly of the, the lineup of baseball guests, it's like the Mount Rushmore of the sport. Yeah, but there was one interview in particular, and I, I don't know exactly what the year was, Roy, that captivated my attention. I think it may be late 80s. On the same stage, members of the 500 Home Run Club, you'll yeah. probably remember when, Reggie Jackson, Frank Robinson, Ted Williams, Mike Schmidt, and Ernie Banks. We also interviewed every one of them that day, but they couldn't all be on the same stage.
1: Some had to make a plane, et cetera. We had uh, Frank, Ernie, Ted
0: was rare form, Mike Schmidt. And I love the the question that you asked, Ted Williams, because I think it's something every fan wants to know. Is there anything like the feeling of hitting uh, a home run. Your, and his response
1: was so great. What was the feeling like? Was it better than anything else you felt in life, hitting that ball right? It ranks right 1-2. <laughs> it was really one of the last times Ted was with the guys. You know? Yeah. I remember, it's in the interview, he said, Frank Robinson was like a little kid that, that night. He was like, I can't tell you how, how good he was to me as a young man, teaching me how to hit. And he talked hitting with me, a rookie, trying to make the ball club for an hour. I was very impressed. I just sat there like a little kid, wide eyed and everything. And I I always felt like great about that since that one day and his love of the game. That's what I admire a lot about him and also on the field, his command of the strike zone. And Ted was there as he's telling the story and you see Ted like, oh shucks. And one of the great pleasures for me, and I didn't know this was gonna happen this way tonight, buddy, that here we got some of the greatest players that ever lived. And you want them to know what they know about me or what they think about me. It was the time that these guys said thank you to Ted. Yeah, Uh, what he meant to the game. Uh, I remember Reggie Jackson talking about Ted. And for me, I just think he's such a great guy. And then also, he happens to be... The greatest hitter, missed five years and hit 521 home runs. So when I think of Ted Williams, I think of such a great person. You know, history goes back to Babe Ruth, the very end of Babe Ruth's career. And he knew DiMaggio, obviously very much knew DiMaggio. But there was a a real, authentic, historical figure in the game with us that night. And I remember ESPN didn't want to do the interview at first. They said, "Eh, people don't care about these old guys anymore. I said, really? We ran it, and they re-ran that thing about eight times, and they got the best ratings because yep. they had never seen such an amazing reaction to seeing Ted Williams talking about Ernie Banks, Ernie talking about Reggie, Reggie talking about Schmidt. It's was such a great experience.
0: Let me just say what's remarkable about that. That interview really speaks to your level of talent because take Ernie Banks out of the equation. Mike mm-hmm. Schmidt, Frank Robinson, Ted Williams, and Reggie Jackson are maybe four of the most difficult interviews to do. From t- I mean, they can be ordinary. All four of those guys can be difficult to pin down.
1: I think part of the reason was that I don't take any credit. Thank you for this nice compliment. But I think they were on their best behavior because Ted was there. And these guys were so all in awe. I mean, they had all met Ted here and there. But to be on camera, I still think to this day that it was among the greatest experiences of my my career to Mm. to have those guys and to think that ESPN was balking at the whole possibility of even
0: doing it. Because to be able to hear Reggie Jackson, and it's maybe the most animated I've ever seen him, talk about hitting those three home runs in 1977 at Yankee Stadium.
1: I just felt good. And for lack of a better, more sophisticated term
0: of saying it, Roy, I had it. I just had it. And then to hear Ernie Banks pipe in and say. I thought about the head nightmares. I woke up with sweat. And I, you know, my dream was always,
1: it was in San Francisco, Frank. I don't know why San Francisco, but I was dreaming about hitting three home runs and that we're in the, Win the World Series in San Francisco. Nightmares all the time. And when I see Reggie, I, I was so embarrassed to tell him this because it was just a big part of my life because it's something I always wanted to do, to hit three home runs in the World Series game. I think when you think about the moments in that interview, Ted Williams, in his very moving tribute, backed by the players, they were inspired by his greatness. And I remember at the end, he considered himself very lucky to play the game. I remember how lucky I was to do that interview. There's a moment... In that interview where you see Ted getting emotional Mm -hmm. and he was not normally an emotional guy. He, for some reason, Ted liked me. He didn't have a ton more time after that. And I just was so thrilled and honored to be part of that. And Ted Williams was the manager when I was bat boy of the senators
0: at old Miami stadium Wow!
1: and Reggie Jackson, uh, eventually years later, of course, played for the Yankees. The first day that uh, in Miami, I covered his first day. Reggie wore number 20, not 44 on his first day. Why? That was the number he was given. He also loved Frank Robinson, who managed Reggie Jackson in Puerto Rico. But then he changed it to 44 and he changed it to 44 to honor Hank Aaron. So it's and then we had McCovey talking about number 44, honoring his buddy, Hank Aaron, who he grew up with baseball has these things. Football doesn't. Basketball doesn't. They're great
0: sports in their own way, but they don't have the sentiment that baseball brings you. And there was one moment, too, you asked all of the folks on the stage if they ever feared a pitcher. Frank Robinson said he did not fear Don Drysdale. Reggie, when asked, said, no, he did not fear Nolan Ryan. But then you asked Reggie about facing a particular pitcher all-Star Game 1972 at Atlanta's Fulton County Stadium. He feared Bob Gibson. I, w- I was afraid of him. I was
1: afraid because Banks and Frank and Mays and everybody, Aaron told me, man, this guy will hit you. you all that all that boat stuff you got, Reggie, you better not do that. He got a, a double off of Gibson. And he ran slowly. And I ran around the base and I got on second and I looked down at the ground. I didn't even, I wouldn't look (laughs) him in the eye. Gibson turned around and glared because Gibson was very intimidating. Glared at him. And Reggie was like, I'm sorry, Mr. Gibson, it won't happen again.
0: (laughs) Well, (laughs) the same with Mike Schmidt. Mike Schmidt then chimed in about his own story. When I hit that home run, I was more scared after hitting the home run (laughs) than I was when I walked in the
1: Please forgive me. I, I won't do it again, sir how intimidating Gibson was. In the next at-bat, the first pitch, I just
0: walked up there, and I did like you did. I got Mr. Gibson. I'm sorry I got those hits. <laughs> right, right. I didn't mean to get those hits, right. but I got to come up here and swing the bat. You know. Got up there, wham, <laughs> drilled me right in the arm. He's the
1: greatest pitcher probably I ever saw in person, I would say.
0: Roy, if I were a hitter, i think about what it would have been like to play at hot as a frying pan Texas Arlington Stadium and face Nolan Ryan, who would yeah. just as soon fight you than pitch to you. Will you please tell the story of your trip to the opening of his museum when you became acquainted with Henrietta?
1: <laughs> oh, very, very good. Again, you've done your research. Was is great? I was going to be the host and the entertain. I perform a show about sports. If you anybody's listening here and they have a corporation and they want me to come in and do it, I do a whole show about sports and music and all the things, and I sing too and stuff. So Nolan Ryan knew about this. He flew. He says, Roy, I want you to just be the host and, and perform for my my dinner for the opening of the museum. And the museum is in Alvin, Texas. And it's really something to see if you love baseball and you're anywhere. It's not that far from Houston. You can get in a car and get there like 35 minutes. So it's not that bad. So I go up there and before the show, we're sitting at the table with Nolan and his wife, Ruth. And they said, you hungry? And I said, well, I'm hungry a little bit. And he goes, look at this. And they bring this gigantic, slab of beef bloody and red and all kinds of grease they slam it onto my plate i don't happen to be a beef eater but uh, not that that matters to anybody here but coincidentally just don't eat a lot of beef and i was so shocked he i said wow i said he's said, aren't you gonna eat it and he was a rancher he was a cattleman he says that's henrietta i said henrietta he goes yeah we we slaughtered her on Wednesday." And that's that's Henrietta right there. I knew Henrietta for I had never met anybody who knew a piece of beef on a plate. And I didn't know what to say. I said, oh, okay." He goes, well, aren't you going to have a piece of Henrietta? And I said, "Uh, Nolan, you know, here's the thing. I, I thought quickly. I said, when I speak or perform, I don't like to eat before the show. But thank you very much for this incredible, generous thing. And I'm sorry that I didn't get to benefit. No problem. So I do the show. The show's over. We're walking out. The cars are pulling up to take me home. He has this big, big bag of bloody beef in a bag. And he goes, this is for you to take home and enjoy. And I'm going, holy (laughs) you know. But I, I had never in my life ever experienced anything like that. But Nolan was a cool guy. He was a real cowboy. I mean, this guy would have been perfect for the 1880s. He pitched like, you know, a gunslinger. He was, he's like right out of the uh, casting for Yellowstone. He really was. And, you know, he ended up with 5,000, 5,000 strikeouts, but it's 5,000. Here's the number. I know this because I memorized it. 5,714. Now for baseball fans, they would know what the 714 is. That was Babe Ruth's home run total. So I thought it was so ironic, but think about 5,000 strikeouts. You know, now if a guy gets 200 strikeouts in one season, it's almost Cy Young Award. I mean, it certainly puts you in the count in the balloting. That's 25 straight years of 200 strikeouts. And more than that, think about that. It'll never be broken, that record. There's no way anyone's going to have 5,000 strikeouts ever again. Of course, Nolan Ryan pitched well into his 40s. I think 44, or 45, maybe 46. And I had him on the, the last day that he pitched because he was pitching in Oakland or something and he blew his flexor or something. And that was it. His career was over, but he came on the show and we we talked about his career. It was really something, but that Henrietta story is a true story. Yeah.
0: Is there one stadium, one major league ballpark? We talked a lot about old Miami stadium, but is there one major league ballpark that you have affinity for that you remember fondly that oh, yeah. have some of your best memories? Which one would well, it be? I think Memorial Stadium
1: in Baltimore.
0: Great little uh, neighborhood ballpark.
1: It was also the Colts played there too, and I—I'll tell you something was really cool about that. I mean, I've had this amazing life, Mike, but before he passed away, Johnny Unitas did an interview with me in Baltimore, and the stadium was still up. They were getting ready to tear it down, Memorial Stadium. I said, uh, "John, do you think we could go to the stadium, take a drive, go down there, and walk around on the field, and you tell me some of your memories?" He goes, "Sure. Let me just make a call." Do you know that we went onto that field? It was it was all overgrown. It was it was getting ready to be raised and t- torn down. Yeah. And he, he took about an hour, and you could see that look on his eyes, like, "Wow, this is where it was. This is where John Mackey caught the pass right through, and this is where Raymond Berry used to make." It was such a cool thrill. He also took us into the locker room, which was again pretty pretty disheveled after all those years. And he said, "This is where Bubba Smith would sit. This is where." Uh, Gino Marchetti would sit and he would throw up before every game. And it, were, I was in the, it was like ghosts in the locker room. And John Unitas was showing me that stadium. Oh, man, I never had an experience like that in my life. I hope that I could find it somewhere in our archives. But that was a thrill for me, too. It really was.
0: Yeah, man, I would love to see that. Listen, I will close with this, Roy. I could spend hours talking to you. It's such a joy. But I'll close with this. You had a great line in your book that really could be the subscript to this. In fact, this podcast, you said, quote, you don't have to live in the past to enjoy the present, but for me, it really helps. Beautifully beautifully said. I, I, I am a
1: person who bows to the past maybe a little too much. I'm very nostalgic. I'm extremely sentimental. And I think the thing that keeps baseball alive in my heart is the sentiment and the history and the lore and all of that to the fact that This kid who is speaking to you right now, it started right here, this ballpark. There used to be a ballpark where the air was fresh and green and the people played that crazy game with a joy I'd never seen. And that's where it was for me. And that's why it'll always be in my heart. Unlike as much as I love other sports, it'll be nothing like the love I had for the game of baseball and still have to this day.
0: I hope you come back on because I feel like we've just scratched the surface. I have so many other questions I want to ask you too.
1: You're a wonderful re- interviewer, and you you do your research, and you do your pro, your your study. You know exactly what you want to ask. It's refreshing, and I, I it was a real pleasure to to join you today to talk about why baseball matters to me. This ballpark matters, and old ballparks never die. There's just a different venue for somebody else. That's all.
0: You and I both also share a love for Jerry Lewis. Two of my favorite movies of all time are Ladies' Man and Boeing, Boeing. Um, I make my I, I make don't know anybody who thought Boeing boy was their favorite. I would oh, have thought you was naughty professor.
1: No, I no, come did.
0: on, naughty professors too. He's never been a best,
1: Jerry's best performer. Well, Cinder Cinder Fellow was pretty good. Yes. Cool. We'll come back and I'll tell you Jerry's stories. That's another nice yeah. thing. But uh Jerry was a baseball fan too. He knew Lou Gehrig. And he had Lou Gehrig gave him one of his gloves, and Jerry held onto it in a safe. It was it's worth like a quarter of a million dollars or something like that. Played golf um, with Jack Kennedy? Jack Kennedy, he did. He he loved it. And, uh, you know, there was good sides of Jerry and there was some sides that weren't pleasant. But for me, he came on that show, man, and we had a blast. And it was really great to talk to him. One of my comedic heroes.
0: The ladies, man, if you go back and watch that movie, that set in particular, like there is some genius that went into the creation of just most filmmakers at the time wouldn't even think to try to create something like he did on that set.
1: Well, he was a visionary. He was a real filmmaker. He knew what he was doing. And I will tell you one other thing. It was a movie called Cinderfellow, where he plays this kind of gnomey, kind of like this creepy guy who wants to go out with this princess, like Cinderella. And there's a staircase. You may remember this in the movie. There must have been two or three hundred steps. And he had to run up and down these steps in the scene and, you know, do it comedically and also do it quickly. Do you know that when he got to the top step, he had a heart attack? doing that scene on those steps because he was running up and down those steps. They had to shut down filming for two weeks while he's in the hospital. Yeah.
0: Oh, my God. Roy, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Have me back
1: again. We'll do it again. And, and also thank you for keeping alive the memory of the great old ballparks.
0: One final note, Roy Firestone really is like those of us who have a deep appreciation for baseball history and specifically old ballparks. In his home in Los Angeles, along with plenty of Baltimore Orioles memorabilia, he also has 54 miniature stadiums that are tucked in various spots on his bookcases throughout his home. And again, for my money, the two greatest interviewers in the sports world and sports history, Bob Costas and Roy Firestone. I just want to take a second and say thank you. Thank you to all who listen. It brings me so much joy to be able to host this podcast. And um, yeah, I'm just, I'm grateful for each week that I that I get to do this. So thank you so much. The Lost Ballparks Podcast is produced by John Carter, Ryan Beard, Briggs Buckingham, Mike Lipinski, Mike Dunn, Alex Kemp, Xavier Guerra, Kyle Schmidt, and Manny Zaplakis. Looking forward to being back with you again next time for another episode of the Lost Ballparks Podcast.